Well, good morning, Lighthouse. Oh, that's, that's, I'm the one who woke up early. Come on, y'all. Good morning, Lighthouse. Okay, very good, very good. Um, you know, since many of you don't know me, I thought I'd just kind of introduce myself a little bit so that it's more than just like this strange guy who happens to look a little bit like a North Korean dictator as up here preaching to you. So I uh, wanted to introduce, introduce myself to you a little bit um, and uh, kind of tell you a little bit about God's grace in my life. First, um, uh, you know, I'm, how would I describe myself? I'm a believer. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And I'm a pastor. And I think it, it bears in mind that it goes really in that order. Uh, first, God adopted me into his family when I was uh, young. And it is God's grace that has kept me near him until now. Uh, second, I'm a, I'm a husband to a godly woman named Miranda. Um, I met her at UCLA and got to know her more in our young adult group, uh, where we both knew uh, your pastor, Mark Chin. In fact, um, interesting story. When I proposed to Miranda on that day, she happened to get food poisoning. It was not great. Um, she, uh, her like lips started turning purple. <laughs> I was driving her from the Getty Museum uh, back to her apartment to, you know, get her to bed or something like that. And uh, I had to call a physician and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Do I take her to ER? And I called Mark. Um, and so uh, I, I had to sit there and kind of, I think, spoon feed her uh, some Gatorade or something with electrolytes until um, she felt a little bit better. Um, so I'm a believer. I'm a husband. I'm also a father to five children. Um, I have two boys and three girls. So from oldest to youngest, it's uh, 12, 10, 9, 6, and 2. Uh, it's never a dull moment in my house. Um, and so when I hear like uh, little kids and stuff, like a doesn't phase me at all uh, because that's just my life. We do take uh, family trips to Costco and we do get stared at. Um, they all kind of like, I'm like, yes, there are five, one, two, three, four, five, you know, uh, but we, we're used to it now and we just kind of take it. Uh, and finally, God has called me uh, by his grace and kept me in the ministry as a pastor. I serve as the senior pastor of Laguna Chinese Baptist Church in Elk Grove, which is just to the south of Sacramento. Uh, Wendy Kwong goes there. Greg and Crystal Leong go there now. Uh, Kim and Christy are from there. Uh, and uh, let's see, uh, Garrett as well, Tong. So um, this church has been dear to our church. Because we know that when uh, a lot of our students graduate and they go to San Jose State and they choose to come here, we know that they are well shepherded and that they are taken care of and that they will not be lost when they are here at Lighthouse. Um, that they will be remembered, that they will be cared for, that there will be oversight and shepherding. And so we, we really do thank you very much uh, for shepherding those who came from Elk Grove um, and should you ever be visiting, um, feel free to stop by. We'd love to see you. We'd love to greet you in the Lord. Uh, and on behalf of our church, uh, grace and peace to you all. Uh, and now that I'm less of a stranger, it's time really to go and study God's word, uh, because that's really the most important thing that we can do on a Sunday morning. Would you please, uh, join me in a word of prayer? 
Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of grace in the gospel. We thank you that through the gospel we can be made sons and daughters, that we can be adopted into your family, and that we now have connections all over the world with people who have been adopted into your family. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and you would open our hearts so that we may behold the wonderful things that are in your word. We pray that you would give us teachable spirits and, Lord, that, it, that, that the preaching and the teaching would be clear and so that it would honor you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as our country emerges, continues to emerge out of this pandemic period and re-engages with public life, we see lots of lively discussions and different opinions. Though mask mandates have long since expired, there are still people who wear masks. I was down the street earlier uh, at the Starbucks off of, I think, Mary Avenue. There were several people wearing masks. Others will choose to remove their masks and kind of pray to God they never have to put them on again, except perhaps in a surgical setting. And even those who wear the masks choose to choose differently from cloth to free to surgical to N95. And I would just tell you from the inside that all of the pastors of every church that I know we had such a hard time during this COVID period. If you do not know, I will tell you. If Ted, Kevin, and Mark haven't told you, it was hard. Anybody who came out of COVID, you know, church leaders who came out of COVID going, ah, it's not a big thing, they must have been asleep. Because it was hard. It was really hard. Most of us have emerged from COVID with some sort of limp, <laughs> physical, spiritual, emotional, and perhaps in a bit of a stupor. And as the dust continues to settle, we kind of all wonder who's still here? Who's still coming? During the pandemic period, some people decided to leave their church and they saw it as a convenient stop. And they're like, well, it's an easy time to kind of slide out and nobody knows. Some left because their churches would not wear masks. Others left because their churches required masks. As church leaders, we wish that we could just move on and pretend as if the last three years didn't leave us with permanent scars. But we know we can't do that. And instead, we need to address the divisions that emerged or that were disclosed or unveiled to us during the pandemic. And to that end, we understand that every local church probably has to have some uncomfortable conversations. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ knew that the church would face challenges to her unity, both as a universal church and as local churches. And this is why he prayed in John 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
And so if there was something that really was exposed during this pandemic period, it was the unity of believers. Universal church, local church, it was the unity or lack thereof. What is the basis for our unity to each other? And how do we cultivate that unity in the body of Christ? How do we cultivate it and how do we maintain it? In the church, our unity ought to center around who we are in Christ. We are a new people. We have been made new. We have been regenerated. We are called Christians because of our allegiance and association with Jesus Christ. So if you're not already there, please take your Bibles and join me in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, where we will look at our common identity in Christ. And really, the passage unfolds to us in two main parts, highlighting our prior condition and our new position as a people. So first, remember your prior condition, your former condition as a people, verses 11 to 12. Look, follow along with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, first and foremost, we need to remember that who's, who's Paul talking to? He's talking to Gentiles. In the Old Testament and consequently in the Jewish mind, there were only two ways to classify someone. You're either a Jew or you're not. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And unless I'm mistaken, most of us in this room would be of the Gentile persuasion. We would be mostly not Jewish. And here, Paul specifically addresses the Gentiles by referring to them and us by as the uncircumcision. Paul calls us the uncircumcision because this was the primary way in which a Jewish person would distinguish him or herself from his Gentile friends. God wanted his chosen nation, he wanted Israel, to be set apart from other nations, and he commanded that they be circumcised as part of their identification with God. Now, what does Paul say? Verse 11 commands us to remember what it was like before we knew Christ. And in verse 12, Paul lists out five of our disadvantages before Christ saved us. As unbelieving Gentiles, we did not have privileges that the Jews had. In verse 12, it lists out these five. First, it mentions, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. We are separate we were separate from Christ. Now, the title Christ refers to the Jewish idea and the concept of a Messiah, of someone who was promised by God to deliver his people. And as a result of that, the Jewish people looked forward in anticipation of a Messiah, of a Christ who would come to save them. Second, it says that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were excluded. We were far off. We were cut off. And that points to the reality that those of us who are Gentiles were out of the picture. We were excluded from the commonwealth or the citizenship of Israel. 
you know, ever read the Old Testament and wondered where the Asian people are? Ever read it and wondered where, where the black people are? They are the far off. They are beyond. For the most part, the Old Testament focuses on Israel and her surrounding nations, which for the most part were Middle Eastern. Third, it says that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, what's so bad about not being part of the nation of Israel? What's so bad about that? Being outside of Israel meant that you were not recipients of the covenants of promise. In the Old Testament, we see that God made, pro made promises with his people, and they came to be known as covenants. And these covenants were things that God had specifically promised to his people Israel. So if we had been present when God was making these promises to Israel, and we looked over at that conversation, and we would have said like, hey, what's, what's going on over there? What's, what, 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 what's God saying? The Jewish people would have looked at us and said, God's not talking to you. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. And specifically, Paul would be referring to the covenants that told of a future Messiah. Because in this context, Paul's been talking about the change that Christ has brought. Fourth, it says that we were without hope. Because us Gentiles were not aware of God's promise to deliver Israel with a Messiah, we were without hope. We didn't have anything to look forward to. What happens next? More of the same. Is there anything going to be better? Is there an upgrade? Is there, is there something grand and greater happening? We didn't know to have hope because there was nothing to hope for. We didn't know that God would send a deliverance, uh, send a deliverer. And we didn't know that deliverance was even possible. Fifth, and finally, it says that we were without God. In the Greek, this literally translates to no God. No God. We were without God and estranged from him in every possible sense. We did not know about any of God's promises. We did not know that God was going to send a savior. We did not know that we could have a relationship with God. We didn't know that the existing relationship was broken and messed up and that we were under God's judgment. We just didn't know. All Gentiles really knew about the one true God was that he had this special relationship going with Israel and that they boasted about it. Now, when we look at these five phrases, it would be easy for us to become jealous of all the things that the Jewish people had. I mean, these Jews had, it seems like they had a monopoly. They had an exclusive relationship with God. If you want to know the God of the universe, you've got to go through the Jews. Every other nation worshipped false gods. And they would only be able to know God by really going through his people. And when Paul instructs us to remember our prior condition as a people, he wants us to remember our lives without God. 
what was your life like before God? You know, we like to say BC, before Christ. Or I used to joke BC, before COVID. Because when we think about what life was like, we begin to appreciate what we have in Christ. We were the uncircumcision. We were the outsiders. We were the foreigners. We were estranged. We were alienated. We were outside looking in, wondering what's going on in there. And what's important to recognize is that God is not obligated to save anyone from the penalty for their sins. He doesn't owe, as we would say, he doesn't owe anybody nothing. But in his mercy, God sent Jesus to die. To die for his people, which in the Old Testament were the Jewish people. And in mercy upon mercy, God extends that offer to those who are not his people, to those foreigners, to those strangers, to those who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The Gentiles did not have a culture, a background, or an upbringing where they would have heard about the Mosaic law. They have only heard this this rumor about some God of the Jews. Yet God offers salvation through Christ to all of them as well. I think it's helpful for us to consider and to ponder what our lives would be like if we had never heard about Christ. How different our lives might have been. Because you know what? It helps us to be more compassionate to those without Christ. Sometimes you you watch the news and you kind of just shake your head. How about instead of shaking your head, how about bowing your head and praying for them? How about instead of rolling our eyes, how about looking, how about directing our eyes heavenward and praying for these, for people? Because where would we be without Christ? What lies would we believe? What deceptions would we have embraced? What agendas would we be pursuing were it not for Christ? Were it not for grace? That could be us. Thinking about life without Christ helps us to appreciate all that God has done in and through Christ and that it has been applied to our lives and that there is never a day or a moment when we are deserving of it. It is all his grace. We swim in an ocean of God's grace. Remember your prior condition as a people. Second, Second, in verses 13 to 22, we need to recognize your new position as a people. Recognize your new position as a people. Verse 13, it says, 
But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13 functions in this passage as a hinge verse. It swings from a previous condition to your new condition, to the past and to the present. And it does it through the glorious word, but. Because were it not for that adversative, were it not for someone intervening, verses in 11 to 12 continue to apply. Christ's death brought us near. And the overall point of verses 13 to 22 is that Christ has brought us near. Verses 1 to 10 was really about Christ has made us alive, right? This is Christ has now brought us near. We were lost, but now we have been found. We were estranged, but now we've been restored. We were condemned, and now we have forgiveness. Now, many times in the Old Testament, and specifically in Deuteronomy chapters 8, 28 to 29, God would speak to Israel, and he would refer to Gentiles as foreigners from a distant land or as nations from afar. And unless you're Jewish this morning, that's you. You're the distant land people. You are the people who were afar, but you have been brought near through the death of Jesus Christ. Second, Christ's death has brought us peace. Now, what peace is Paul talking about? Let's look at the passage, verses 14 to 16. It says, For he himself, referring to Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now thinking about this, it's about two groups being made into one. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, right? And it says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is about two being made one. This is about two groups being forged into one through a new identity. So Paul is focusing primarily here on the peace that is made between different ethnicities. This is about ethnic reconciliation between the Gentiles and the Jews. In case you didn't know, the Gentiles and the Jews in the first century did not get along with each other. And they were separated in life and society and interaction by the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was supposed to make Israel distinct. It was supposed to draw up borders that would distinguish between Israel, Jews, and non-Jews. And the centerpiece of that Jewish law was circumcision. It was kind of the sign that you were Jewish. And that's why Paul brings it up in verse 11. Now, to the Jews, 
circumcision was a sign that they were God's chosen people. They were proud of their circumcision and their adherence to the law. In fact, they would often use the phrase that uncircumcised fellow to refer to anyone who is not Jewish. And they would use it in a derisive way to poke fun of Gentile people. The Jews viewed Gentiles with suspicion because they would not follow the Mosaic law, even though they were never party to that covenant. The Gentiles were, in, to the Jews, the Gentiles were considered perpetually and categorically unclean. Now, for some of you germaphobes, this kind of makes sense, right? You know who you are. You carry that, that hand sanitizer everywhere, right? And during COVID, everybody's like, oh, I don't know. Should I touch that box? Maybe we should spray down the Amazon box. We found ways to open doors with the elbows, give people the, you know, like I, I called it the Baptist elbow bump. Right. Thank you for coming to church. Here's a hand sanitizer squeeze, right? During COVID, all of us were made far more aware of vectors of transmission, of ways in which we could catch something. That was similar to how Jewish people looked at Gentiles. Are you going to make me unclean? What have you touched today? If you touch an unclean animal, if you touch an unclean animal, you touch me, now I'm unclean. If you could imagine what that does to people, you don't really have to imagine. You just have to roll, roll back in your minds about a couple years. What does that do to people? You know, sometimes you got people come to, come to church at Laguna, they still don't shake hands. They're like, hey, right? It's sort of like, no, no. And sort of like that bow, like bow and then back up, right? If you thought of the person in front of you as like a possible means for you to become sick or let's say unclean, what distance does that place between you relationally? Now Jews looked at Gentiles in that way. If I hang out with you, and I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile, you might make me unclean. Now, a lot of these cleanliness laws are described in the Mosaic Law. And that's how the Mosaic Law functioned to really keep people separate. So that's, that's, the, that's the Jewish mindset. Don't make me unclean. This is the Jewish mindset. Now, on the Gentile side, now you can imagine what Gentiles would have thought about Jewish people. You Jewish people, you think you're so much better than everybody else. Just because you got a snip and you're circumcised, you're like greater than everybody, you're holier than thou. What is that? Gentiles didn't like Jewish people either. Circumcision in the Gentiles' mind, circumcision was just like a sign that you're arrogant. Gentiles saw Jews as proud self-centered people who thought they were better than everyone else and Gentiles despised the Jews because of this arrogant attitude. 
Now, as a result of this antipathy, you can imagine that there was a lot of tension, to put it mildly, between the Gentiles and Jewish people. So how did Jesus Christ bring about peace and ethnic reconciliation? Well, there was a twofold process that brought about this peace. First, Christ destroyed the division between the Gentiles and the Jews. And that's in verses 14 to 15. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The barrier of the dividing wall was the Mosaic law. The things that Jewish people, you got to do this and don't look at, don't, don't go over to the Gentile side. They might make you dirty, unclean. And because Christ has abolished the Mosaic law, it no longer needs to be observed by believers, whether Jewish or Gentile. And if you are here in Christ, you do not need to follow the Mosaic law because we have the law of Christ. You certainly don't need to look at the Mosaic law as like the means by which you are saved. We are instructed to live as Christ lived, to love as he has loved, and to worship as he has worshiped. And Christ brought about peace by abolishing that which divided the Jews and the Gentiles, namely the Mosaic law. So Christ destroyed the division, that which divided the Gentiles and Jews, and Christ reconciled them both in one body to God, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Christ not only broke down the divide, the division, the wall that divided us, he also gathered us and put us into one group. So take away the wall, gather them in one group. That's essentially what Jesus did at the cross. Now, we are new people because of our union with Christ. Now, how are we new people? First, there are two aspects to our regeneration. We are, we are a new creation, right? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Those who are saved become new creations. If anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. We have been made new, right? And secondly, just like personal salvation brings forth a new creation, Corporate salvation brings about a new people. You are made new as an individual and you are made new as a group, as a people. You are a new people. Galatians 3.28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, female, no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that females stop being females? No. Does that mean that I stop being a male? No. Does that mean that Jews cease to be Jewish and that Gentiles cease being Gentiles? No. Right? Revelation talks about people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So there's still some ethnic identity. No, what this means is that the most significant way that we regard one another is according to our spiritual status. Who you are in Christ is the most important thing about you. And this makes sense if you were just to, I don't know, calculate the total time. Who you are in Christ makes a difference for what? Eternity. 
We want to know where people are headed after this life, and we want to know if people have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So Christian versus non-Christian, believer versus unbeliever, is a far more important distinction than male or female, than Jew or Greek, than slave or free. So in a very real sense, Jesus Christ has created a new breed of people. Christ's death on the cross reconciled people to God and gave them a new identity as Christians. Ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, skin pigment, none of those matters nearly as much as your faith in Christ. Christ's death has made us one. Christ has reconciled us to one another. Third, Christ's death brought us access to God, verses 17 to 18. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 18 brings the entire Trinity into view here. Christ's death allows us to have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And because of Christ, we have unprecedented access to the throne of God in heaven. And we are invited into a relationship with God and we are encouraged and beckoned to come and approach and commune. Romans 8.26 reminds us that even when we don't know what to pray, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus died on the cross so that we might have access to God. Verse 13 tells us that Christ's death has brought us near to God. Verses 14 to 16 inform us that we have horizontal peace with others and vertical peace with God. And verses 17 to 18 highlights our newfound access to God through the blood of Christ. And what is the trajectory of all of these new privileges that we have through Jesus Christ? Where is this going? How can this be described? Look at verses 19 to 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ's death, yes, brings us peace with one another, brings us peace with God, but he brings, Christ's death brings us into God's household, brings us into God's family, Long ago, God promised to make a new covenant with the people of Israel, and this was an altogether different covenant from the one that God had made with Israel at Sinai through Moses. And in Jeremiah 31, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
So one day God said that his law would be inside people's hearts, not just around them. That God's law would be written on their hearts, not just on tablets of stone. And that people will have the opportunity to know God personally, not just to know about God. And people will no longer be separated from God because of their sin, because God will forgive their sins. Again, we have been brought near. We have peace with God and others. We have access to God. And all of this has been accomplished so that we might have a relationship with God and be part of his family. This is the culmination of God's good and gracious plan, that he might be our God and that we might be his people. How close that we might be his family. Brothers and sisters of Lighthouse, that day has come. When he died on the cross and declared, it is finished, Jesus became the cornerstone in the construction of something altogether new and glorious. Aligned by Jesus as our cornerstone, God built the foundation through the New Testament apostles and prophets. And now, one by one, person by person, God's church continues to be built. Every believer fits into God's dwelling place. And when scripture declares that we are God's children, we draw attention to the new relationship that we have with him and to each other. We are members of his household. When scripture says that we are God's dwelling place, we identify ourselves as being part of God's house. God dwells in us and among us. And in my mind, I have this image of a holy God who is present in a very special way when his people gather to worship him. This is the beauty of the church gathered, assembled, as we sing praises to God, as we stir up one another towards love and good deeds, as we humble ourselves under the teaching of God's word. One day, the redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship at the throne of God in heaven. And until then, this corporate gathering, this local church worship is as close as we get to that experience. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul calls this mystery. He calls this the mystery of the gospel, that God would save Gentiles and adopt them into his family. And this is why he declared so boldly, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, how does this deeper understanding of what Christ has accomplished on the cross help us to live in a way that pleases the Lord? Two things. Number one, embrace God's perspective of humanity. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 really helps us see the before and after, right? The before and after. We were once far away from God, and now we've been brought near. We were once enemies, 
and now we have peace. We were once strangers to God, and now we're part of his family. We were once in different groups, and now we are made into one new person in Christ. Notice that this passage emphasizes God's perspective on humanity. God sees people as either in his family or not. And we must likewise embrace that perspective on humanity. We must learn to see people primarily as those who are made in the image of God with souls. And when we look at people, we should be most concerned about what their relationship status is with Christ. It means that we should be more united by our faith than by our culture, than our background. Because of Christ, I share more in common with someone with a completely different background than someone who grew up across the street. Why? It's because Christ is all in all. Because Jesus is more important to me than where I was born, than where I went to school, than where I reside, or things like my ethnic identity. That means I'm a Christian who happens to be Asian, not an Asian who happens to be Christian. That means the most important thing about me is where I'm headed for eternity. Because you know what? Everything else is pretty much incidental and temporary. Ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, all the other externals are unimportant when compared to who you are in Christ. As human beings, we should be aware of the suffering in the world around us. But as Christians, we ought to be motivated by the spiritual realities in play. That people are either going to heaven or they're going to hell. Second, a second application this morning is to love others by elevating Christ above all. We live in a free society and we have lots of choices and we make these choices all the time. And we can choose the company we keep. We can do these things because for the most part, we're in the driver's seat. We're in the captain's chair. And our choices shape our circumstances. But take note of the nature of the church. What is the church? God chose us. God predestined us. God's grace moved in our hearts so that we might place our faith in Christ. God adopted us. God put us into his family. In other words, you don't get to choose your spiritual family. God chooses it for you. We do not get to choose who God loves. Instead, we must love the ones he chose. We respond to God's sovereign choosing by loving our fellow family members in Christ. Is it not written, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another? Our love for each other 
here in God's family is an identifier. It's a calling card. It's a hallmark. It's a sign. It's an insignia. It's an emblem that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not an afterthought. It's not a footnote. It's who we are. It's a badge of honor that demonstrates to the world that we belong to Christ. Your love for Christ should lead to your love for others. And that love for others needs to be robust. It needs to be deep enough to withstand disagreements. I may not agree with you, but I love you. Can we say that? Can we say that? You love Christ so much that you don't allow political differences to get in the way or other affiliations because you're going to be with that person for eternity. And when political parties have ceased to exist, you will still be with that person in heaven worshiping at the throne of God. Within this context of having this robust and mutual love, it needs to be strong enough to have conversations about controversial topics. Because we love Christ, we should refuse to allow our different opinions to divide us because what binds us together must be stronger than what drives us apart. This is precisely what we saw during, during COVID. Who would have thought wearing a mask was a theological conviction? Ask the doctors working in the surgery, in the surgical rooms, the ORs. Sometimes we allow lesser things to be elevated so much so that they're dividing the body of Christ. but we should be marked by love for one another because of our love for Christ. And we should learn to view one another through the lens of saved and not saved, of heaven-bound versus hell-bound. And we should always remember that that is of the greatest and highest importance. Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its reminder, Lord, that you have knit us together as one. People from different backgrounds of different persuasions have come together as one because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, for we do not deserve your gracious salvation. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that we would treasure that above all all so that you would be honored and so that we would be marked out as your disciples and in your son's name we pray Amen.